I think for me, I finally understood, like, like with distance from this, I think I'm finally understanding what the book is, like what I think the book is, which could totally be wrong. But for me, like they're like the book is like three fourths setting up the humanity of the characters and the context in which they are living. And he's spending like all of his time making sure we can get like the fullness of these characters. And then like the last, I would say even less than 25%, like the last part of the book is then like, okay, what happens to all these characters that are in this, this setup? And I didn't know that's what it was gonna be. So I was like, what's going on here? Where's the story? Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free flow and conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we're still each in our own homes because we're trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't like safe and healthy. And as we approach a year of this whole pandemic, social distancing, quarantine, and all that, just I've been thinking about how all of this really did not have to go down this way, but it has. So please continue to stay safe and keep each other safe. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Todd. My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and culture, folklore, and cultural studies in the English department at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you. Adriana. Hi, I'm Adriana Elsa. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College, and I cannot wait to get that vaccine. Woo, Crystal! <laughs> I am Crystal Moten. I am a public history professional working as a museum curator in the great city of Washington, D.C. The nation's capital. Yay! Yay. All right. So from all these various places that we're beating in from, today we are looking forward to digging into the complex world that Robert Jones Jr. created in his debut novel, the Prophets. Jones Jr. is a writer from New York City who has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review. He is the creator and curator of the social justice social media uh, community, Son of Baldwin, which has over 250,000 followers across platforms. The Prophets, as I said, is his first novel. So before we dig in, spoiler alert, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we talk about everything. As you should know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective, so consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. All right, so I know that I sent all of you this podcast, which everybody should check out on Throughline about Octavia Butler, and in that podcast she said, um, and this is her quote, I wrote Kindred to make people, I hoped, feel history as opposed to merely knowing facts of history. It seemed important to me to get that kind of emotion, the extra feeling, the awareness of what it might might have been like to be a slave, to feel it on its own, on your own skin, so to speak, and to, you know, to understand the lack of control of your own fate that a slave suffers. So it's kind of thinking about that as I sort of finished reading this book, because I think that's when I listened to the podcast, but also when I was listening to an interview um, with Jones Jr., he talked about sort of Toni Morrison's thing about how fiction helps us get at the truth, right? If not just kind of like narrating facts. And he also talked about, you know, her thing about how we, if we don't see the book that we want to read, that we should write it, right? And he talked about how he really hadn't come across any literary depictions of Black queer love in the U.S. before the Harlem Renaissance. So, so this is kind of a big question, but 
thinking about this novel as depicting, you know, black resistance, black love, black suffering, black life, kind of what stood out to you in its portrayal of all of those things um, in the antebellum South, maybe especially in comparison to like other things that you've read and come across. I'll go first, I guess. I was waiting for y'all to go first. <laughs> when we were talking about this book before we started recording, everybody else was talking like crazy and I was just being quiet because I was being like an honest student because I hadn't prepared as well as the, everybody else in class. So now you're then, like, then you ask the question. just like talks and they haven't read. Yeah. <laughs> then you ask a question and nobody says anything. Todd, you know that it's a recording. We can cut out the little silent bits. <laughs> I know. I'm the one who does that. <laughs> That's okay. Go for it, Todd. Well, I mean, I was, this is a very obvious point, which would be made by the person who's prepared the least for you know, his discussion. But <laughs> it is, it's very obvious. Um, there are a couple of things that I, I noticed. And the obvious one is, yes, this does um, deal with like sort of queer um, love, you know, same, same sex desire. Um, and there are almost no, you know, novels that I can think of um, that do that, um, you know, sort of, if, we, if I were to think about, like, what's the sort of history of sort of like queer theory sort of interventions in African-American literature is usually sort of going back and looking at a book and sort of like reading right. a relationship or a character um, in, in queering that reading when people hadn't read it that way for many, you know, when it was written and for many, many, many years afterwards. So you sort of go back and something like James Weldon Johnson or something like that, you know, main character looking in the mirror at himself or something like that, right? So there, but this is there from the beginning. There's definitely an intention of, of sort of showing that, of representing um, the beauty and the depth and the, the fullness of, of queer desire and love. And it's not, it's not even, it's just like black love too, right? Like it's, I think we shouldn't get caught up, you know, totally in the fact that we have these relationships in the, um, in the in the book that are um, that that are that are same sex or same gender or whatever, but that it's love, you know, that we get to sort of really see and experience this kind of deep and very rich representation of Black people loving each other. And and I think even I, I saw one interview with uh, with him with the author where he said it's not even about the sexual relationships; it's also about it's also about friendships and um, kinship and those kinds of relationships to really show how important that love is. If I can add really quickly to that, I think one thing that struck me about that, you know, we had uh, in some of our pre-conversations talked about how this uh, queers the novel, right? Um, and we can talk more about like the way in which the very form of the novel is um, unsettled and shifted um, in in part because of the way in which black love is is centered. Um, but Todd, what I, one thing I wanted to add is that the, the novel also tells this really interesting story about how the kind of negative valoration of um, queerness, the kind of um, violence and degradation um, uh, that uh, is that accrues to it within Western culture, we can see that happening in the novel, right? We can see Christianity being used as a as a battering ram, as a as a, as a tool, as a weapon against love and kinship um, that the, the novel suggests, right? There's this kind of diasporic past of, um, you know, where there was freedom and there was spirituality. Um, and we, we get the, the like really kind of hard to figure out, but like these like tendrils 
of um, of freedom and love and possibility that are anchored in in that past that make possible kind of the resistance within the present. Yeah, I like all of that. And and what kind of struck me was not only just how we saw love between people. Um, two people, especially in the in the characters Isaiah and Samuel, but also when we were learning about you know each individual woman on the plantation, we saw love too. And I love this. Um, I'm going to read this passage from Maggie's chapter that starts on page 28. And here's what she says. She says, with powdered hands, Maggie rubbed her sides, content with how her figure, not just its particular curves, but also how it never burned and became red under a beaming sun, separated her from her captors. She loved herself when she could. She regretted nothing but her limp, not the limp itself, but how it came to be. The world tried to make her feel some other way, though. It had tried to make her bitter about herself. It had tried to turn her own thinking against her. It had tried to make her gaze upon her reflection and judge what she saw as repulsive. She did none of these things. Instead, she fancied her skin in the face of these cruelties. For she was the kind of Black that made Tubop men drool and her own men recoil. In her knowing, she glowed in the dark. And I love that passage because, you know, it's this immense um, kind of self-love uh, and, and it, it provides this immense kind of understanding of who Maggie is. And, and reading passages like this and they're peppered throughout the, the text um, is something that I hadn't encountered um, either in reading stories of, that are centered in this historical context um, or in many other, any other text about um, Black folks. So I really appreciated how we got into the internal feelings of how these people were feeling about themselves in the face of such kind of cruelty and degradation. Yeah, and I think I was saying this before we started that actually those first um, chapters of the women were my favorite, right? Because I think it was just, you get to know these women so well. I mean, not that you sort of know everything about them, you definitely understand them within sort of, right, the context that they're in. And I also think appreciated that while it was, right, kind of the central stories about Samuel and Isaiah, but you get to really know so many other people who are like a part of their community and a part of their life. And I think going back to your point, Todd, about, right, that it's not just like Black queer love, but it's like Black love, right? I was thinking about that chapter after Samuel and Isaiah are punished, right, and sort of made to basically like, mm -hmm. you know, and like whipped and like the women come together to like heal them, right? Mm -hmm. And to kind of be part of that. Um, or like, you know, Maggie and we kind of find out why, right? Like kind of sneaking them food, like from the main house, right? And there was like a particular relationship she has to Samuel, obviously, but just in general, right? The kind of caretaking. But I think also to go to Adriana's point, right? Like there was like before, right? Amos decides to kind of do his whole thing. Like a lot of people either like directly witnessed right, what Samuel and Isaiah were doing in the barn or kind of knew about it. And like either they like really enjoyed and appreciated it, right? They sort of appreciated that or, you know, they didn't care either way, I'm guessing, right? Like a lot of people. So I think that's um, all of that, I think, is like so true. Um, and I was thinking about, right, I was curious about, again, this is like a big thing, but I was kind of curious about how we thought about resistance being portrayed in, I mean, obviously we have like, the big thing that happens at the end, but like throughout, right? Like thinking about Maggie and thinking about, clearly she was like putting something in those biscuits and the food, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So think about that, but also just like these, what were like all these different ways in which and small and big ways in which people were kind of resisting what was happening to them. I think that's especially true um, because we like, even again, continue to think about Maggie and what she does when she's cooking, 
right? Um, and so, you know, and especially that moment though, where she cooks something and it upsets, uh, is it Paul's stomach? Paul, and then mm -hmm. he has to go out to the outhouse. Yep. But then that moment of resistance then kind of comes and comes full circle and kind of bites them in the right. back as they then have to clean him up after. So it's just so interesting how we get these moments of resistance, but I think moments of resistance, but then also um, in some ways repercussions that, you know, that this resistance is having and how they have to deal with that. I, that is um, exactly what I was going to say, uh, Crystal, with, with this, like attention to like uh, Maggie thinks about it, right? She talks about that in the chapter where we get introduced to the way in which she fools around with the food. She's also super deliberate about why and where she might do something and when she pulls back. And I think one thing that the novel gives us, um, and we've gestured at this, right, is just this deep interiority for every single character, which um, with some of the characters feels like such a joy, like with Isaiah, like there's nothing to not, I don't know, fall in love with in Isaiah, in the way he understands the world, in his desire to be a feather, even when sometimes he's being made into a stone, right? Mm -hmm. Like he is such an amazing character. Um, but we also get put like boom into Paul's head um, and hate every minute of it, right? Like, or Ruth, who is um, like just one of the most bizarre characters Right. And yet at the same time, we see how the whole plantation, she's Paul's white wife. Right. Um, we see how the whole plantation kind of moves around her and has to tiptoe around her because of this subtle and really violent power she has. Mm -hmm. um, at yeah. the same time that she thinks of herself as like calm and beautiful and, and perfect. I, I don't know. I, I want to just like to come in on that because, I, you know, my favorite part of this whole book has to sort of do with what you all are talking about and it's it's the way that the what i th i think the that the that the book distances us from whiteness and sort of like tries to show us how mystifying it is and un like it, that it's very difficult to understand and i think you know the I, I never i don't think i've read a novel that uses that word too bad in it for white people and i thought that was the most brilliant stroke of this whole novel is to use that word for mm -hmm. white people, a word which a lot of people wouldn't have familiarity with. And so linguistically, it already sort of creates this kind of like estrangement or distance from whiteness um, and aligns us with the black characters, even though we do go into the, the heads of, you know, we get points of view mm -hmm. of the white characters as well. But it, it sort of contributes to making them more even more difficult to understand because we, mm. we we understand that the black characters, like the way that the white characters think of black characters, which is pretty common for us to encounter in a novel about slavery, right? That the black characters are not human. You get it inverted, right? You get it where the black characters, it's really clear that they experience the white characters, not just as figures of horror and violence, which is again, pretty common in, in, a, in a novel about slavery, but as individuals that they can't understand why they're doing anything that they're doing. Which is and, okay. Which is no, interesting because like um Jones Jr. actually talked about how writing the chapter about Paul was the hardest. And mm. he actually had to like figure out like what his motivation was. And it's that like beginning scene, right, with his dad, right? Mm. Where he says he basically conflates love with accumulation, right? And that's mm. kind of like sort of you know, so I actually think that in some ways I I agree in a way, but I also feel like 
unlike, right, sort of like maybe white authors writing about black folks, like even in his chapters about white folks, like there's more humanity given to them, right? Like I think about Ruth, yeah. like losing her children one after the other after the other and right, like getting to like Timothy who like finally, right? I mean, I, I don't know, right, I agree I don't know what that's like, right? So I feel like yeah. maybe that's like explains her grief or like with Timothy as problematic as he is clearly also like feeling this like outsiderness, right? Because mm -hmm. of his own queerness. So I don't know, like, I think that's like really interesting because I feel like there's so little humanity given to like, right? Like black characters and like yeah. how they're written by non-black folks. But even in this, like, even as they are like cruel and terrible, like, and for James, like, you know, it's kind of a class thing, right? Like there's sort of this whole thing about how, right? He's kind of this like, Mm -hmm. whatever he lost everything and he came here so i don't know like i just, mm -hmm. I just no like, i i agree with you yeah i think you're i think you're absolutely right i guess I'm, i don't know exactly how to explain it because i think despite that fact right despite the fact that you have these chapters which um provide you know the motivation and give us you know us the reader that that uh, information it's pretty clear to me that the characters them the black characters mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. have that same like they don't have that yeah. same understanding. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could see like, I don't know, I was thinking of like, if you think of being as an animal, I mean, if you see like a, you know, a, a dog or something in pain, you could feel its pain without understanding like wh why it's acting the way that it's acting or something like that, mm -hmm. right? And still not seeing it as, you know, your equal or something like that. So to, I guess I'm saying for black characters mm -hmm. to clearly experience and, and talk about white characters in that way okay. and i think using that that word to refer to them they never call the white characters white right. they never call them like people they never call mm -hmm. them anything that kind of confers humanity on them and even though you know the white characters are the same way with them and mm -hmm. use but you never get this kind of like you know comparable word mm -hmm. used by you know that used exclusively mm -hmm. like sometimes you get a word like ofe or whatever you know yeah there are words that Black people have used historically to refer to white people, mm -hmm. but everybody, every black character uses tubab. They all use that word. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and and I think um, connected but separate. Um, so a yes to all of that, but then also what I think the word tubab act also does is it connects the black folks on the plantation to you know a West African context. So like this this uh, direct mm -hmm. diasporic connection, right? Mm -hmm. That um, that's also important because. You know, um, some some people, some scholars would say that you know that they're that the African you know retentions you know they would doubt the the, the veracity of whether there are African retentions, right? And so, for these characters to be using this word, um, kind of shows the direct connections that that they have to you know, their West African past. Um, and then also, of course, throughout the novel, there are other kind of direct connections that um, that Jones Jr. links, you know, to the characters. But, you know, in this, it, just, just this usage of this first word is connecting us to Africa. And I think that's really important. If I can add to that, and I'm getting a little bit off the kind of the, the representation of, of whiteness or the interiority of whiteness, um, a little bit, but I'm really interested in the question of like this retention of of um, of diaspora Africanness, right? Of the various homelands um, and and what's happening in this novel with that, and it gets us back to that chapter that Anita mentioned, um, the balm of of Gilead. Gilead, I always pronounce that wrong. Gilead, I, think. I, I say Gilead. Yeah. <laughs> um, where um, after um, after Samuel and Isaiah have been beaten and um, and almost killed, it seems like, 
Um, mm -hmm. Maggie brings several of the women together to do this healing. And I'm struggling to find the page number right now, but there's one particular moment that really stood out to me, which is not just Maggie, right? Like Maggie is clearly like either she's one of the oldest people there or she has the closest relationship to homeland practices. Um, but Pua, who is really young, comes into the circle and somehow she knows to bow to Maggie before she leaves to gather all the herbs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so in that moment, like um, uh, one of the women is it Sarah says something to Maggie like, oh, like she knew how to bow. And Maggie says, yes, you know, like, I mean, she hasn't been trained, but she's got the glow. I was like, this is like such an interesting way to talk about the building of ritual and the recognition of kinship. And, and it is a kind of resistance to get back to your original question, Anita. It is like a, a resistance, both the kind of the encroachment of Christianity, um, but also of course, to the idea that, um, that the dominion that these white slave owners have over their bodies is dominion over the whole self. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe there's two quotes that I want to read from that chapter actually that get at Thanks. that, right? So 156, and this is Maggie. Um, and she says, um, I'll tell you all this because it is it the way we have to begin. Don't matter if you know it already. A long line of women before us did this work. Used to be men too, until they forgot who they was. Something about men make them turn their back. Don't ask me what. Wanting nature to bend to their will, I reckon. And there were others too, but they've been split from us. Cast out and forced to be the body and not the spirit. I know because Cora, my dear, told me, and I think that's her grandma, told me, and she never did lie, not even when truth was a de depth of her. Um, oh, yes, it is her grandmother. And then I think the part you were referring to is 159. And she's uh, Maggie sending her out to get Yaro. And then Maggie says, what do you think the Yaro's for when you get back? And she says, when you get back, I guess you'll let her. Poa nodded. She got up. She felt like she should bow, so she did. And then she turned and left. Maggie giggled. So nervous when they knew. She knew to bow, though. Ain't nobody told her to do that, which means her insides are working. He was right for choosing her, as he said. Um, as and I was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I was, um, when you um, mentioned the title of the chapter, Adriana, I was chuckling a little bit because I grew up in the church um, and so did Robert Jones Jr. Mm -hmm. And so kind of uh, Balm and Gilead is also the name of a song. Mm -hmm. and, and it's so interesting because, um, and it's also in the Bible, of course, but it's so interesting because a lot of the Bible um kind of words and terms, I know because they're also in songs. And so that's how I know how to mm -hmm. pronounce certain words because you spend so much time <laughs> in the black singing, right? Yes. And so nice. there is that's a bomb in Gilead. Yeah. That's, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my last <laughs> favorite songs. I guess, yes. but, oh, sorry. I guess related to maybe keeping to the West African connection, I was curious about what you all thought about the chapters that are I guess I read as like the ancestors generally. I don't know if there was more to that that I didn't get, but um, so they kind of pepper the chap, like right, so that they're kind of in between the chapters. So mm -hmm. I don't know what you all thought about that, um, those chapters and like how it's um, interspersed with the others. Right, it's, and that they start us off with the judges, right, the chapter judges. I mean, there's a lot that's really hard about this book, right? That um, And by hard, I mean that it, you read it and there's a kind of stream of consciousness interiority that and and poetry right about this book that means you move forward without really understanding it fully you just have senses of things right um and i think for me those those chapters that you're getting at anita are a big part of like the the not knowing right it's just um we we get a lot of magic um so we get 
the repetition of the importance of seven, whether it's in these chapters or in Maggie's invocation of a group of seven, right, to do the work on the ground, um, we get the sense that there that memory matters and that story matters. We get all of these riddles basically in those chapters. And I think like one of the biggest riddles that they left with me with at the end is there's this moment and oh my gosh, it's such a big novel. I've totally, I don't know where, I, where to find this, but you guys might remember where um, kind of like talking to Isaiah and Samuel, there's a moment where it feels like, you know, the these spirits are talking to them and they basically say, you know, your relationship, your love, your kinship, it matters. It just might be out of time or out of place, mm -hmm. right? This is meant to be, but it might not be meant to be here now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And so I, I just kept on thinking about that a lot, right? Like there's a way in which this novel, oh, I don't know how I'm going to say well, this, but it's kind of like a time travel novel where yeah, we're like, yeah, it is. Okay, thank you. I was like, no, oh, what I was going to this. <laughs> no, I was going to say that too, you know, because at the same time, I mean, there's so many times you were just talking about, you know, when uh, in the chapter where Maggie and the women do this, uh, do this healing ceremony, you're really very aware of the before and, and now, right? Like the old times and the present time. And we're trying to remember this thing from the past. But I think these chapters with the seven, you know, these these sort of like women from um, from the past is supposed to remind us and the characters of the book. Like, it's not always clear. Are they speaking to us? Or are they mm -hmm. speaking to the characters? You know, mm -hmm. but they're supposed to be reminding us all that there is no sort of distinct separation between the past and now right like which which goes to crystal's earlier comment about you know something like retentions right something like the sort of um the evidence of the past in the moment right like the reason why all these white you know anthropologists and historians or whatever uh at the in the 19th and early 20th century were saying well black people's culture was completely destroyed in slavery because they couldn't see the evidence, right? But they weren't looking, they didn't know where to look, right? Like they, if they just listened to black people, <laughs> they would have seen, they, they would have heard the words, they would have seen the ritual, they would have all the stuff that is the actual evidence of it being present in that moment is there. You just have to know how to look for it. And so well, it doesn't surprise me that these voices would be saying, we're here, you just got to see us, right? Like you think we're dead, we're not dead, right? You know, if you go back to that first chapter, which I think everyone who reads this book will go right back yeah. to the first chapter and start reading again, they say, you know, you think that you thought we, you were the living and we are the dead, ha ha, ha, ha right? <laughs> Um, the only thing I wanted to add to that, Todd, is like, it's not just that maybe white folks couldn't see it, it was that they were kept from seeing it, right? So mm -hmm. like the ritual that like Maggie and the women go through, Secret, like right. they were doing it in secrecy, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's also, um, so both that they couldn't see, but both that there was effort made. It's not for them, yeah, right? It's exactly. not for white folks, exactly. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would, the only thing I would add is to just bring that all right up to the present by bringing in Robert Jones. I, I heard in an interview where he was thinking about kind of the characters and also the ancestors as a character. And he said, you know, as he was meditating and writing this, this book, the ancestors kind of, you know, were speaking to and through him. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the ancestors, even to this day, like he's listening to them, communing with them, communicating with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, 
uh, we see we see all of that, you know, in um, in this book. And I just thought it was, you know, just hearing his writing process for this book, you know, and he it was interesting. He said that he's not the type of person that's like, OK, I'm going to sit down in front of the computer and I'm going to just make myself write, you mm -hmm. know, for eight hours. But he writes when he has an inspiration and that inspiration can come anytime, anywhere. Um, and many times when he was writing the ancestors, it, it became very early in the morning. Um, and so he wrote them, you know, into the novel in that way. But I think just like they came to him saying, we need to be in this book. That's how they're also operating in this world. Like we are, we are present in your life. Right. And, and we want to tell you, we have something to tell you. Um, I love the way you put that, um, Crystal. And just really quickly, I, I mean, it ties back to like the title of the novel, right? The prophets. Um, and it's like the ancestors are not just a past, right? They're not a memory. They're a, they're, they're a voice that is there to, to help us cast the future, mm -hmm. right? That offers mm -hmm. us possibilities um, if we listen in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in our pre-conversation, um, uh, Crystal, you were mentioning that like the all the Bible, that a lot of the Bible stuff here kind of is from the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that is about kind of setting the, the ground rules, right? For, for religion and community. Um, and the prophets um, are part of that, right? I looked up Isaiah and Samuel, mm. and both of them are prophets that are about the destiny of Jerusalem into and after the exile um, or God's law for, for Israel. So there's a way in which like here we get this total rewriting then, you know, because this isn't for, for Israel. This isn't for Judaism. This is uh, arguably um, for this this people here, right? For the Maggies, the Essies, the Sarahs, the Puas, the the Aunties, um, the their prophecy, right? Their story. Yeah. And do we want to maybe talk a little bit about all the biblical references? Because I think it's like a complicated thing, right? Because on the one hand, right, all um, almost all of the chapters are names of like like either names in the Bible or names of books of the Bible. But on the other hand, he's also saying, right, kind of going back to. Um, Adriana's like very early point about how Christianity in some ways, right, basically was this thing that like separated families kind of made part of this, like, you know, made a lot of the suffering worse, but also maybe I think, and this is a kind of at the final chapter from the ancestors, right, kind of saying that like these kinds of like queer relationships were always like there and it's more, it's that, um, and I'm trying to find where that says, right, but that it's like basically it it was the, um, it was the culture of the captors, right, that made it seem like this was wrong. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just curious about like that sort of dual, oh, here it is, right, so. Um, 373 and it says living so far from the existence you were snatched from a half truth also given over to becoming ever more like your captors you cannot even look your lover in the eye mm -hmm. this is the mark you leave upon each other separation so yeah it, I was kind of yeah what do people how did people think through or think about the biblical references in the book yeah, I think it's so interesting because uh, through the character of Amos, right, we get we um, see specifically how Christianity is being kind of used to um, enforce homophobia. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see that directly. But then there's also been and so there, there could be this um, this conclusion that you can make that. Yeah, and I think um, I've, uh, if I remember correctly, Jones does mention that kind of homophobia is created out of the context of, of European Europeans coming to the continent, um, uh, observing something I didn't understand, and and be and you know creating this hate around it, which that's also tied hand in hand with Christianity. But I, the other thing that I've been that I know is that you know there are some scholars who 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 have well we know that Christianity uh, was on the continent right before. Mm -hmm. 
uh, European uh, arrival, right? And so then to connect directly Christianity to homo to homophobia, like those those lines aren't you know you can't make those conclusions. But I think Christianity in the context of chattel slavery in the United mm -hmm. States, kind of the how homophobia becomes enmeshed with that, you can make that come to that conclusion. Um, and so I just think all that to say the character of Amos really kind of shows us how, you know, cr Christianity can, you know, can be destructive and can demonize humanity and love and sexuality. And you see that as Amos is preaching and then what he preaches kind of infects um, the rest of the people on the plantation. Um, mm -hmm. So those are some initial thoughts to that. Only well, for him, it was like a very instrumental thing, right? Like he wasn't like, I've seen the light and I'm gonna use Christianity. And right for him, it was like very much about, right? The kind of the ways in which the, um, Right, sort of like Paul and um, James would like see them differently, or sort of the kinds of protections that they right. might get as a group if they like took this on. So I think, right, I, know, I found that I mean, Amos is kind of like a complicated character, right? Yeah, and then just to, just just to make one step back, I mean, even the the reason why Amos decides to strategically use yeah. Christianity. Yeah right, is worth exploring because, you know, he uses Christianity as a way to protect his wife, right? His wife, that's not I mean. not because he's like, oh, I have this, you know, this spiritual awakening, but I am going to use this as a tool. And that is exactly how Christianity is used, is, is used and, as a tool. And he's trying to protect his wife from the man who's teaching him about Christianity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I would add to all of this that the, we get the point of contact um, and colonization earlier. Um, so on page 183 um, at King Akusa's, um, we mm -hmm. have the, the colorless people who arrive. Um, and there's this line, right, where King Akusa, I, you know, uh, these colorless people have basically, um, they, they clearly are not in agreement that Alewa and Kosi um, should be wed. Um, and um, King Akusa says, these colorless people had the strangest system of grouping things together, but by what they did not understand rather than by what they did. He could see bodies, but it was clear that he could not see spirits. Um, and then on the next page, you know, Brother Gabriel says, I think your people would benefit from our religion. So that we were seeing that moment um, pre-conquest uh, um, in, in this, like where we can see the two different perspectives and um, we have the weight of history, right? We're kind of like the, the Benjamin angel of history. We're looking back going like, oh shit, right. here it goes. Right. right. And, and to bring this, uh, to bring this thought kind of back to the question about kind of Christianity in the Bible, the title of this chapter is Second Kings. And I really appreciated um, number one, that being the title of this chapter, but then number two, you know, learning that King Akusa, like learning who King Akusa is. King Akusa is a woman, right? right. Uh, and I had to keep reading like portions of this chapter because the pronouns were like, okay, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, you know? And yeah. so- this chapter, <laughs> Both of those chapters, right? The first yes. Kings and the second Kings, yeah. Yes. yes. 
very slowly. <laughs> well, which is interesting, like how we go into like, right? All these presumptions we already have about what the term king means and like what gender the king is, right? Uh, but I think it's also like the parts that like Adrian just read also kind of goes to your point about how it was about Europeans not understanding what they were seeing and therefore either like forbidding, right? Like either ending it or like completely misunderstanding it. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about those two chapters and like actually the other ones too about Kosi. Cause I think this is like also an interesting way of thinking about ancestors as like more immediate ancestors, right? Kind of thinking mm -hmm. about kind of the parallels between like Kosi and Eloa and like what happens with Samuel and Isaiah. And I was also just like curious about, so it's kind of the kingdom of Kosongo, which didn't actually exist. So it's kind of curious about what y'all thought about his decision to make it a fictional uh, place, right? Rather than setting like a gender queer, queer setting onto like a actual setting. Yeah, Crystal. I I did not mind that it wasn't one real place because that then allowed me to imagine it could be multiple places within mm. history. And mm. I think that could be that could be an important point. Like this is not an isolated mm. place that we can point back to. Rather, you know, it is an idea that is all on the continent, right? And I mm. love thinking about it in that way. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I, I heard an interview with him where he said just that. So you, you oh. you're right on it. Because, oh, okay. Yeah, his thinking, you know, the way he explained it is that this is something that was sort of everywhere. It was kind of like the way that people saw the world or didn't see it the way that Europeans did. So, mm. and it's very interesting, you know, because I think you know now in this you know, sort of post-colonial moment, there's so many African nations which have been, become really horrible on you know yeah. human rights with regard to um, uh, LGBTQ issues, mm. and they often sort of talk about it as this is something that white people brought to us, right? So this book does like some really important work mm -hmm. in trying to sort of speak to that understanding or that way of thinking about it. That actually this is something that predated colonialism and that. It's the the colonial sort of incursion that brought this um, this restriction, this sort of limited way of thinking about people and the ways that they can be and the ways that they can love. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important that way. So that so that yeah, so the 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 kingdom could be anywhere. I think it sounds. I think I looked at looked at like there is like a Kosongo area in the Congo, yeah, in Congo, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. so it's pretty close to that. Um, but there, so you know, and that would sort of fit with history. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. I think it's that you get that kind of um, composite yeah. kind of creation. Okay. That makes a lot I, of sense. I think the other way that I think about all of this is that, um, you know, we have those those seven spirits, the women with, uh, you know, the voices reminding us that um, uh, that time is is not as easy to figure out, right, as we think it is. And Alewa and Kosi are, are Samuel and Isaiah. They're just different versions of Samuel and Isaiah um, mm -hmm. with... Mm -hmm. uh, Right, like um, actually, kind of similar fates, um, similar, uh, similar love, similar um, bounty in in kinship yeah. and love, and and then similar fates. Yeah, something something that just came to mind is that okay? I just pulled up a map of Africa, and if you think about the Congo being in the center or the heart of Africa, right? Mm -hmm. That this this is that. at the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, of how we can think about and understand 
Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the continent, um, and that mm-hmm. just was like, let me look and see where Congo is. I knew, I knew where it was. Yeah. But it's like very much in the center of the continent. So, yeah. Um, yeah. To, to your point, Todd, about you know, sort of, I mean, this notion of like there were sort of these much more heterogeneous ways in which people thought about love. I mean, that's kind of true in India too. Like, you go to like temples and you look, and there's like people of all genders doing all sorts of things, right? And you're like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> right? But then like the British came. But I think it's also. It's not just that it was like colonialism and it's like messed up, but like I'm pretty sure this was Uganda, although I could be wrong, where they were like passing these like anti-LGBT laws, but they were like American churches like helping to sponsor mm-hmm. the people who were like mm-hmm. lobbying for them, right? So it's just mm-hmm. like a continued kind of like relationship mm-hmm. with like colonialism and like the complicity of like colonialism and Christianity. Um, but mm-hmm. also like when I read the Kosongo thing, the one thing I was thinking was like, I would love to read a novel about Kosongo. I would too. Robert just, like he actually said that he was thinking about it because like writing right. a prequel and I'm like, yes. <laughs> I was like, That's I what he said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Akusa and like everybody else in there. So sorry, Todd, you were gonna say something. No, I just was gonna say, you know, the last couple of comments just really made me think, especially, you know, um, when Adriana, you know, you were saying, I think it was Adriana, but was saying, you know, that Kosi and Eloa are Samuel and Isaiah and, and everything. It, I think it's this. So there have been a lot of books written about slavery now. You know, I mean, the neo-slave narrative is a huge sort of uh, subgenre in African-American literature. There have been so many books that have, and, 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 and those books came about to try to sort of um, correct the record, right? To like to represent for us a kind of experience in slavery that had been represented in a in an objectionable way prior to that by by white writers, by white historians, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I mean, I'm thinking of you know whenever I, I'm talking about um, neo the neo slave narrative with my students, I sort of think about you know William Styron and um, the Confessions of Nat Turner and this book in 1968, which won I think the Pulitzer Prize, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, not to like attack. William Styron, a white writer or anything. But I always think about when I read that book, I was like, oh, he's trying to understand why Nat Turner killed all those people. Mm. And I think he killed him because he was a slave. Right. Like, like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's that, you know, that, 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 um, that inability of white imagination to understand what it would mean to be dehumanized, to be enslaved, an enslaved person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these the all these novels try to tell this story by describing slavery, by giving us a sense of the people who are enslaved as human beings. So here's another one. And like, how does this one do it different? Or what does this one bring to the, you know, bring to the table that others haven't? And we've I think we've talked a lot about some of the aspects or some of the qualities of it. I just think too that overall, I mean, I was thinking about that scene, the slave ship scene with with of Kosi on in the in the bowels of the slave ship, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most powerful chapters in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, again, like I can think of scenes like that in other books, but there's this, there's several differences. And then the one difference to me that is so important is when Kosi dives into the sea, he takes that little white boy with him. He kills, he kills a white Mm -hmm. boy. And so it is not just like, I think a lot of times people imagine acts of resistance on the part of slaves as sort of self-sacrifice right like you you Mm -hmm. kill yourself or you um you know you you destroy yourself in the act of resistance but here's an here's an example of one where the resistance is killing someone else right and he and he has like there's collateral damage right like he's he's tamed to two other people and but he asks for forgiveness for that but not for killing Mm -hmm. this white kid who's sort of part of the crew that's at, that's enslaving him. So I think you know to go back to our um, earlier kind of talking about resistance. 
resistance is so sort of like you know um, stitched through the book mm -hmm. in this really amazing way that is you know somewhat different than other other uh, um, neo-slave narratives that I've read. I mean, there's certainly ones I can compare to it, but like, I just think like this is just another thing that we should, we should focus on as a kind of different aspect of this book. Um, to add to that, um, Todd, so the, the first chapter we get in the ship with Kosi is um, on page 237. It's called Bell and the Dragon. And then there's a second one where we get the denouement. Um, mm -hmm. But in this first one, it's um, this intense vision of the bowels of this slave ship and Kosi trying to find Eloa um, and finally realizing that Eloa has died. So Bell and the Dragon, I had to look this up. It's an apocryphal um, part of the Bible. Mm. Um, so like one of the ways that I like think, you know, there's so many interesting titles interspersed here, right? Like this kind of core parts of the Old Testament or kind of gestures at books of the New Testament. And here's this apocryphal one, right? It's the story that had fallen away, that has to be recuperated, that has to be kind of reintegrated into the story. Um, and then, of course, um, not of course, I had to look it up, sorry. Bell and the Dragon is about not worshiping idols, right? So it's this kind of shift from idol worship towards Christianity, which apparently is not about idol worship, <laughs> um, but that's a story for another day. Um, and so like to think about like um, this chapter is the one where Kosi, um, you know, it ends with he had made Eloah's seven ants a promise, right? Mm -hmm. That promise was mm -hmm. to take care of Eloah. And that's, the, that's, that's what remains, right? Is this commitment. Um, from home, not the ship, not whatever is going on in the ship, but what mm -hmm. must happen from here. But can we then talk about the ending then if we're thinking about resistance and thinking about even rebellion perhaps, right? Like mm -hmm. that's kind of what happens. But also like I didn't realize this when I was reading this earlier and I can't remember whether it was in like Essie's chapter or Poe's chapter by basically looking at the tools at the barn and they were kind of, you know, and uh, whoever it was and I can't remember exactly, I'll try to find it, basically was like, why aren't people just like taking these up and like Right, and they do kind of at the end. So yeah, I think Pua. I think Pua might okay. ask at some point. Yeah. Um, so was, um, I'll try to find it. But I feel like Todd, you were coming to the ending, and you were like, "Oh my God, what an ending!" <laughs> we were like testing about this. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about that. Like what happens at the end, right? Both to like what happens to Samuel, but then what happens in the aftermath of what happens to Samuel, like. What it, yeah what do we what do we think yeah i mean i don't <laughs> i don't know what to say about it i mean uh, um it's it's uh it's extraordinary you know um it's well i mean i guess there's like again i have read many many novels about slavery which have a kind of you know crescendo to this really big you know kind of battle or massacre or whatever you know rebellion or whatever so that in and of itself is not okay entirely new i mean even like i was thinking of the the underground R railroad which is a you know mm -hmm. book that's only three years sure. old something like that it kind of has something like that mm. at the end and an escape um but this one the reason why it happens again i think is so unique and the um the catalyst for it Mm -hmm. is and maybe you guys can sort of like explain to me or like check me on this because I'm trying to understand that essentially Samuel goes to Timothy with the intention of killing him mm -hmm. because I think we can understand that Timothy is like Tim, it's not just that Timothy is like inserting himself into the relationship between Samuel and Isaiah it's that he's he's violating Isaiah mm -hmm. Isaiah is not a willing participant in what's happening Although Isaiah himself is having 
sort of like mixed up feelings about it as well because his feelings of like maybe dominating a white person or I'm not exactly sure how that is. So, but that is really the catalyst point, right? Like that's what starts the whole thing. And you've got all these sort of like mixed up emotions and feelings. You've got mm-hmm. uh, Paul who's like drunk and has had, he's been robbed. And then he's got the, he, he's this relationship with his, his son. Adam. Yeah. Adam, yeah. All this stuff. And all this comes to a head right there. Mm-hmm. And of course, so I, I'm, I'll just put that out there and, and see what you all have to say about that as the catalyst point. I totally agree with you as a, that, that that's the catalyst point. And I guess what I would say is like the book, I think fulfilled a promise um, that it, it, built from the beginning, which is it's giving us um, deep interiority and a way in which we're navigating outward events always through this kind of like these, these different lens and perspectives. And so when we get to kind of the what what is clearly an uprising after you get to a certain point in the novel, but like you're seeing it like in such scattered pieces and it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. And it's confusing not just for us, but it's confusing for the people who are experiencing it and they're only doing what they can, right? They're like, you know, we have Maggie on one end, like holding one end of the field down. Mm-hmm. Um, we have... Um, you know, Isaiah running away and then hallucinating Samuel, or maybe not, maybe it's a version of a spirit Samuel. We have Pua managing to get away and Sarah, I think, dying, but it's not clear, right? We have her attempt to get away, but it, you know, then she finds other people and, but she stands up to them, right? So we get that moment again of like standing up to, um, uh, to these, I guess, overseers. Um, and Essie killing Solomon, is that also? Oh yes. What happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I think so. yeah. And in such a uh, like that felt so talk about Toni Morrison's right like um, heritage there. I felt like you know there was just a moment of like both like intense love and anger and um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with um, all of that. Once I started getting to you know the end of the novel, I it just it just was a lot it was so much for me to to even you know each scene that was happening and i could imagine all of this happening at once around the plantation right mm-hmm. um i was trying to hold in my mind like all of this happening um at once and and kind of us learning basically not the end but like the end for some of these characters that we had spent so much time with in like the first 300 pages <laughs> Um, and when what we get is it is it Amos the one who we hear from like as all this is going on, and he's the one who's thinking about like but but the empty okay it's not safe but at least it's stable mm-hmm. right and so right. afraid of like what would it, what will happen if this all falls apart because the mm-hmm. world is really dangerous I mean particularly for a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there's, there's just like, no, um, you don't get the sense that there's safety for any of them. There's, there's exodus, but of course that's not an end. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 355 and he says, um, empty wasn't in, in, in a way safe, but it was reliable. And what could all, yeah. of, what all could a people do who had nothing, who never would have nothing as long as the two remade the world in their own lonesome image, hope for, except to know the who, what, when why, where, and how of their misery. It's like you feel for him, and then you get down to the bottom of that page where he's like, look, he's, he's standing next to Paul's body, and he's like, as soon as the cavalry arrives, he would give them all of their names, starting with hers. And I'm like, ooh, Amos. Oh. Hmm. Okay, so 
I think that there is something definitely positive and sort of generative in the ending, despite its sort of chaotic nature. And I mean, I think you get this sense with Isaiah, for example. I mean, Isaiah learns his name, right? Which is the giant secret that's been kept from him for the entirety of the book that Amos knew and wouldn't tell him, right? Mm-hmm. Amos is the one who's been sort of keeping him separate from the from his um, his inheritance, you know, his spiritual and cultural inheritance. And I think, like, I, I want to say that even though people die, even though you know, it's a horrible, horrible scene. There is, there is dignity and liberation in fighting back, right? There is, if you go down fighting, you know, it's, it's like, if we must die, let it not be like hogs penned in, a, in an inglorious spot, right? Like that whole thing, we'll go down fighting, which is a kind, there's a kind of dignity in that. And even if the world is dangerous and where is Isaiah going to go? How is he going to get, you know, further? How's he going to survive? He knows his name, he knows his name now. And he knows that he, there's, that they loved each other. Mm-hmm. He and Samuel loved each other. Samuel did what he did because he loved him. Yeah. And that, like, there's, it's very unambiguous and clear, the love between those two characters. That's never questioned through the entire uh, novel. And it's not mm-hmm. questioned at the end. And we all know that death cannot stop love, right? And, and so I think that is definitely sort of reinforced for us in that ending. But it is like, it's the reality mm-hmm. of, a, of a slave system, right? It's the reality of, of enslaved people's existence in that system. I mean, if he if he ended the story with Isaiah, you know, living in you know Canada or something like that, <laughs> we we would have been like, come on now, you know. But yeah, it would but be the, just one more thing that we we couldn't, couldn't take. I think. Yeah. yeah, but the final chapter on the plantation ends only one question: what to do when the cavalry arrives? Only one thing to do: with every drop of blood, rebel. Right, that's mm-hmm. not. 359. And I was also thinking about how just the novel ends, right? Um, And I'll read sort of from 377. Here's the fire now, dancing, destroying, but honestly, only wanting to be sung to, softly, sweetly. It is a dying flame, shrinking, flickering, waiting to be extinguished, finally by a lullaby. But there are no singers left, for the noose has already been hung. The bond has already been broken. The scene has already been foresaw. The then is arriving now and nothing in creation able to stop the coming. Nothing except you. Is that us? <laughs> so maybe that's where we can end, because we are out yeah. of time. <laughs> so uh, what are we Robert, doing? Robert Jones gets the last word. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> As he totally should. Um, all right, so let us go around and talk about what we're reading, watching, eating, whatever y'all are doing in your own homes. Uh, Todd, you want to start us off? Uh, okay, two things. I um, started to listen to that through line series that you sent to us, and I started with Marcus Garvey. I haven't gotten to Octavia Butler yet, but I would highly, after having listened to the Marcus Garvey one, I am super excited to listen to the other two. And the third one is about Bayard Rustin, who everybody needs to know about. Please find out about Bayard Rustin. Um, so uh, I'm going to be listening to that. Um, and also, I just got uh, The Vanishing Half, and I'm going to start reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I'm extremely busy, so I don't like. I might finish it by June or something. I don't know when I'm going to finish it because we're going to be reading another book before you know next month. I don't know when I'm going to fit it in, but uh, that's going to be the next book that I read for pleasure. So cool. Thanks, Adriana. I um, am finally reading Parable of the Sower. So I haven't listened to the podcast yet either, but um, but I I got my son uh, um, the graphic novel version of Parable of the Sower for for Christmas. 
Um, and I realized like when I got it for him, I was like, maybe this will be the incentive for me to finally just also read the novel. Like he can read the graphic novel, I'll read the novel. Um, he left it here, uh, the graphic novel. So maybe I'll just read both of them, um, you know. Wait, you haven't read Parable of the Sower? I know, I know. I've read all of Xenogenesis, okay? Okay, well, you got most people beat then, so yeah. And I really hope that uh, Toshi Reagan comes back with her opera for the Parable of the Sower at some point oh. for the pandemic, because it was amazing. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, cool. Uh, Crystal? So I um, am in the process of reading very slowly two different things, which they may sound to be like two entirely different things, but actually are kind of connected. So one is a book called The Cutting Season, by Attica Locke. And it's um, kind of a book that takes place um, on a, a plantation, um, right? But it's a plantation, it takes place in the in now, but there's like a murder that happens on this plantation. So it's kind of a murder mystery set on a plantation that's operating as like a, um, um, like a, an event place now. Uh, now. But and on, and on the other hand, I'm, um, I just started, uh, a new book by Catherine McKittrick, Dear Science and Other Stories. And what she's doing with this book is trying to unpack um, kind of how Black life and Black livingness, and this is a quote from the description of the book, are in themselves rebellious methodologies. And so kind of putting those two together, like reading this novel by this Black author, you know, telling stories about what it means for this Black woman to be working on this former plantation, doing event planning in the midst of a murder mystery. It's kind of an example of McKittrick's idea about kind of Black stories as methodology. So I'm cool. reading both of those. Crystal, can oh. I like can I just say that Attica Locke does not get enough uh, like publicity? People should ah. be reading Attica Locke has is like a great great mystery writer. Ah, great mystery okay. writer. Yes, oh, yes, yes. So, um, yes. Before I do mine, though, Crystal, I feel like you have something else to shout out. Perhaps a new oh, podcast. Oh, <laughs> yes, my new podcast. Yes, I have a podcast. It's Black Herstory. Yay! Yay. I'm so excited about it. Um, if you want to learn more about it, just go to blackherstory101.com. Um, so excited about this, the podcast where I will talk about all things Black women's history, focusing on one story at a time, one, next, one idea at a time, and come on this journey with me as we learn more about a topic that many of us did not get in our education, Black women's history. <laughs> Yay, cool, awesome. So that's definitely one of the things I was listening to because she has her first episode out which she talks a little bit about what it's gonna be about. So I can't wait for the rest. Uh, my shout out in terms of a book is uh, Kylie Reed's book, Such a Fun Age, which is like a really quick, compelling read and like about all the like messy ways in which like race and class and gender kind of play out in our friendships and our like, collegial relationships. And you know, like so many, like pretty much every character is like, you're just like cringing as they're like doing these things. Uh, but yeah, really like good, fun novel. And also a uh, movie shout out to Nomadland, which is directed by Chloe Zhao. Mm -hmm. And kind of, um, I think it's based on this book that was actually like looking at these people who sort of either choose or who are like forced to kind of live in these vans and like creating communities. And it's like an almost perfect movie. It did have this like really unnecessary pseudo romantic storyline that I was like, did not need. But also check out her earlier film, which honestly is like a perfect movie called The Writer. So Nomadland <laughs> and The Writer by Chloe Zhao and then Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Um, and so our, our next book on the podcast is gonna be Josephine by Beverly Jenkins. And 
Beverly Jenkins writes historical romance. And so it'll be like our first romance. Uh, so we'll sort of see how much, you know, I'll sort of blush through the episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's set in like the Civil War era and is like, you know, a romance. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> Sexy, steamy. Uh, <laughs> already blushing. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Come so, on. Yeah. So next book <laughs> and as always you can find the podcast on itunes stitcher all the places where you can find podcasts and please keep wearing those masks washing those hands keeping those six feet away and staying home thank you all for listening and sending out big virtual hugs y'all bye this has been another brand new episode of the drip recorded remotely from saint paul minneapolis and northfield minnesota and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikator, Adriana Estill, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence, the All Spoilers Collective. Shout out to our mascot team of dogs and cats, there are a lot of them. Our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri, and we'll be back next month with a brand new episode on Beverly Jenkins's Josephine. Now, we got excited because we thought it was going to be a steamy romance novel. Turns out it's a YA novel, so it's not going to be as steamy as we thought. Uh, the good thing is my mom can listen and she won't be embarrassed or I won't be embarrassed that she's listening. So listen it up, mom. Until then, please take care of yourselves and each other. Peace. Peace.